Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Happy Sunday if you're watching live. If you're listening on the podcast, welcome. Do spread the word on both. Today, the F-bomb. Now, dropping the F-bomb, I appreciate, is a biggie, isn't it? Fascism. Just throwing fascism into a conversation. It instantly provokes some sort of a very strong response, I think it's fair to say. Now, the reason, and I, I appreciate it's a provocative title we have for the show, is Britain sliding into fascism. And the reason we're having this conversation now is it is a live discussion. I've seen various viral tweets, particularly from younger people on the left, uh, discussing fascism, discussing the F word and about where Britain is heading. So I thought we would bring in today two brilliant experts who I will shortly introduce, and we will have a, a thoughtful, interesting, nuanced conversation about fascism. What better way to spend lockdown than that? Um, and as well as that, I should say, we've got this brilliant discussion and we're later joined as well by Steve Turner. Now, Steve Turner is the Assistant General Secretary of Unite. He's standing to be the successor to Len McCluskey. We've got a lot to talk about with him, ranging from a green industrial revolution uh, to Keir Starmer's leadership. How's that going? Hmm. It'll be an interesting discussion, so do stay tuned for that as well. Now, fascism. Now, why are we talking about this? So there has been, objectively, the growth in this country, sanctioned, of course, by the government and encouraged by large sections of the media towards a very authoritarian form of right-wing populism. This didn't start under Boris Johnson. And I have to say, the the redemption arc that you sometimes get from ghoulish members of the establishment uh, is grim to watch, and Theresa May has proved not to be an exception. But Theresa May is her government, her administration, was the first which I think really actively toyed with right-wing authoritarianism. Let's just start by reminding ourselves of a speech she made to Conservative Party conference back in 2016. But if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what the very word citizenship means. Mm. Citizens of nowhere it became a kind of viral way of summing up, I suppose, the kind of particularly egregious nature of her form of right-wing populism. Citizens of, if you're a citizen of no, of nowhere, it was this idea of a rootless metropolitan elite, essentially, uh, which was conspiring against working class ideas of patriotism and undermining working class identity with multiculturalism and immigration. Now, throughout the May administration, we saw various rhetoric, use, very inflammatory rhetoric used to describe those deemed to be critics of their interpretation of Brexit and critics uh, of government policy. Now, this was a period in which 
people were described on front pages as traitors, saboteurs, crushed the saboteurs. And of course, the most notorious front page newspaper was enemies of the people. This was used to describe members of the judiciary, uh, judges uh, who ruled that parliament should decide when Article 50 would be activated. Uh, And then they went after one of the judges for being a gay skier. Bizarre, uh, but disturbing nonetheless. Now, more recently, under Boris Johnson's administration, where this form of right-wing populism, I think, has been further developed, nurtured and encouraged. Now, Priti Patel uh, notoriously denounced at Tory party conference do-gooders and lefty lawyers claiming those representing asylum seekers uh, were defending the indefensible. Now, later on, there was a knife attack at a lawyer's firm representing refugees Uh, by an alleged right-wing extremist. Now, that firm actually placed the blame for that on Patel's rhetoric. Other disturbing developments, the fact that overt far-right extremists have endorsed the government, that is a new development. Margaret Thatcher was not seen. So here we get Tommy Robinson, for example, the far-right thug, racist thug, uh, and fraudster. He came out and endorsed Boris Johnson back in 2019. Uh, So did Britain First, another far-right organisation. They urged their supporters to join the Conservative Party to make Boris Johnson's leadership uh, more secure. Uh, There was also a demonstration, for example, which I... Well, there were several demonstrations that day, back in September 2019. There was a left-wing demonstration and also a far-right demonstration, which... Far-right thugs uh, who, me and Ash Sarkar, the leading commentator, we had to be protected by uh, six left-wing heavies, I suppose. Uh, They were a great great bunch of comrades. Uh, As far-right extremists tried to punch us in the face and lunged at us. But they alternated their chants with, we love you, Boris, yes, we do. And we've got a lamppost waiting just for you at passing uh, left-wing uh, demonstrators. Now, I suppose what's new about this is uh, even take take Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was not, you know, valorized by the National Front. I mean, she did in the late seventies toy occasionally with rhetoric, anti-migrant rhetoric, in order to win back support from the National Front, who who surged during the late nineteen seventies. But they didn't see her as one of her, of their own by any stretch. Um, this is different because clearly overt far-right figures have clearly seen Boris Johnson as one of their own. Uh, I mean, a lot of it might be mischievous and, and just stirring the pot a bit, but that is publicly what they have very much been saying and what they've done. And that, I suppose it's that, you know, part of what we'll discuss, the demarcation between so-called centre-right and far-right has, how much has that dissolved? Now, far more recently, and this is, what I suppose, what's triggered this latest conversation is the government led by Boris Johnson. It's worth pointing out Boris Johnson's often portrayed uh, by his media cheerleaders and others as some sort of kind of libertine, a libertarian who, who doesn't like the nanny state, you know, James Forsyth, uh, the spectator political correspondent who's married to Boris Johnson's spokesperson. And yet another episode of this is a completely normal country. Uh, he claims, you know, this is someone who hates the nanny state and used as evidence the fact that when Boris Johnson was editor of The Spectator, he, you know, so much stuck two figures up to authority that he 
He put the he put cycle helmets over the no cycling sign in the spectator. Truly compelling evidence. And whilst there was this relentless media barrage in 2019 portraying Jeremy Corbyn and his allies as authoritarian menaces, disregarding their uh, background in repeatedly opposing the authoritarian measures uh, of New Labour, like trying to increase detention to uh, uh, without charge to 90 days, amongst many other terrible authoritarian measures. Whilst Boris Johnson was portrayed as this libertine and you know libertarian freedom lover, defending our ancient liberties, partly that was the rhetoric used as a wedge issue with in terms of the standoff over Brexit. But of course, now what they're doing is introducing a policing bill, which could basically allow discretion for the police to ban any peaceful protest, anything which is deemed a nuisance, noisy, uh, or, or I can't remember what the exact term was, something along the lines of extreme discomfort, which is, of course, what the, the point of a demonstration is to those in power. Now, just finally, before I bring just a bit of housekeeping and bring the guests in, I went to Hungary back in 2016. I think Hungary is a very instructive case study. It's a warning, certainly. It's definitely a warning. Hungary is ruled by Fidesz, which is a political party that used to be a member of the Liberal International. It's led by Viktor Orban, who is often portrayed as one of the golden boys of the post-Stalinist era, uh, a reformer. That's the kind of rhetoric he used to describe him. And what this, you know, centre-right party did in office is radicalise. It resorted to extreme anti-migrant rhetoric inflammatory anti-Semitic rhetoric, largely focusing on the financier George Soros, who's become the bete noir of the far right in, in, in many cases in Europe and, and the United States, um, but also has hollowed out the substance of democracy. So you've got the trappings of democracy. There are political parties in Hungary and they have elections. But what they've done is used every possible measure to you know, suppress independent media, to clamp down on civil society. And, and, and Hungary is not, you know, he calls it himself an illiberal democracy, but it's not a democracy in a meaningful sense. Is that where we're headed, basically? I think it's, it's something worth asking. I'm now going to bring in our two brilliant guests. Please do warmly welcome Professor Gargi Bhattacharya and Dave Renton, two fantastic guests. I should just say just very quickly, this is fine. There's a slight lab lag uh, with Gargi's connection, but her wisdom and her insights will still uh, will still dazzle us all. So that's absolutely fine. Don't worry about that. Uh, so just to begin, just to begin, let's start with the f bomb, the f word, fascism. What do we mean by fascism when we talk about fascism? What what are definitions? I suppose. Well, uh, for me, why why do you even want to ask what fascism is? And for me, you know, since I got involved in that decades ago, we on that we always had quite a simple idea, which was. Fascist states were different from all the other states we've had in Europe and the United States for 100 years because they had a project that was much, much more serious about killing people, about bringing horror and terror to the advanced countries of the world than anything else we've seen in a very long time. You know, so think about fascism. The thought which comes to me immediately is the Holocaust. The thought which comes to me immediately is the Second World War. Now, so the idea is, is that fascism is a movement that's capable of doing a much greater amount of horror and terror than anything else that happens under normal right-wing politics. And it kind of is that because it's not just anti-left, it's not just anti-quality. There's lots of things on the right-wing politics that do that. But much more so than any of the others, it's also about mobilising ordinary people to achieve those dictatorial, murderous and inegalitarian ends. 
so it's actually serious about mobilizing hundreds of thousands of people so you know um, you know therefore the question is boris johnson a fascist well no boris johnson is a right-wing politician who tries to get past the parliament fascists don't they try and have a counter-revolution in those senses he's not a fascist but there are still things going on which need to be talked about Gargi, what do you think? Is it unhelpful for us even to invoke the word, the F word? Because it is often thrown around by the left, let's be honest, within our circles. You don't get booed if you start talking about fascism. So what do you think? Is it, is it unhelpful or is is there some use in, in, in that, in this whole conversation? I think it's certainly worth having the conversation, not least because people are already having it, as you've said. But um, I also feel slightly anxious about how easily the left says, well, the enemy is fascism. Not because I think, oh, we're upsetting people or we're kind of disrupting the civil liberal order, but because we might be just missing our target a bit. You know, the whole point of understanding whether or not Britain is sliding into fascism is what we do in response, like how we mobilise ourselves, how we speak to each other, where we think the locuses of power are. I'm not, I'm not altogether convinced that Britain is sliding into fascism, but I do think... Britain is hyping up some elements of authoritarianism that already existed in state practice. And is also, I think, as I'm sure Dave can talk about better because he writes about this, is also making some odd, scary, dangerous alliances globally with different kinds of right populist movements that are not all quite the same, but all um, want to kill some of us. And so there's kind of these different levels of things happening. I mean, Dave, do you think, uh, you know, part of the problem with using the word the F word, the fascism, is it people can let off the hook forms of so-called liberal democracy, which can actually be very authoritarian. And, it, you know, to, to varying degrees, lots of countries which are self-styled liberal democracies have toyed with authoritarian measures throughout their history and invoked various forms of authoritarian right-wing populism. Yeah, look... I mean, a lot of where I come from is is that over the last four years, um, I've got lots of friends in the States, I've written for publications in the States, that, that whole debate's been going on there. The, the problem with um, people using the word fascism is there's a really quick comeback, and the comeback goes like that, it goes like this. Um, Donald Trump's in power. If Donald Trump was a fascist, or obviously here, Boris Johnson was a fascist, well then Hillary Clinton would have been in prison, Keir Starmer would be in prison, hundreds of thousands of quite ordinary and moderate politicians just would be forced into exile or whatever. Now, we've not been through that. So when someone goes, Trump's a fascist, Boris Johnson's a fascist, for people who want to say things are all right, they've got a really easy comeback and say, obviously, that's not. Um, so you, what we don't really have on the left enough of is a kind of language that enables us to explore this dynamic of kind of a growing authoritarianism so that um, you know, like, like you gave the example of Hungary, um, there are still elections in Hungary. Hungary's um, not a one-party state, but yet it's something different from what we think of as a democracy. It's kind of moved permanently in another direction. And under normal life under capitalism, there are quite a lot of things about our state, quite a lot of things about um, the repressive bits of our state, even quite a lot of things about the way um, we run... Um, you know, certain ways we run our elections, which kind of are already easing that path. So we need to have a language that gets us to say things like um, the policing bill, it's not a one-off, 
it's not just a five minute thing and then it'll go away and everything will be back to normal. All around the world, all around Europe, in the States right now, normal is more authoritarian, it's more state power than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And that direction of travel, there's nothing which says that direction of travel stops here. Actually, there are things about our society which mean it can go a lot further still. I mean, Gaggy, do you think, I mean, there's this concept, I suppose, of guided democracy, managed democracy, first used in Indonesia um, a long time ago. It's been popularised by pro-Kremlin theorists in Russia as well. Is that kind of where we're heading towards a more managed form of so-called democracy? See, all of these ways of framing the question kind of assume that there was a kind of functioning liberal democracy not so long ago when we're moving away from it. So one thing is to say, oh, well, who did that even, that liberal consensus work for? There's always been people who've been kind of excluded from the niceties of civil society, who the state has operated with in highly militarised ways, even in kind of heydays of, of liberalism. So, but I think there is a shift away from our expectations of what the state can and can't do. And I think it's two things. I think it's one, the thing that Davis just said about this slide of authoritarianism. So it keeps pushing, edging away the kind of um, idea of acceptability in terms of levels of authoritarianism. But I think at the same time, we're living through a time when people for very good reason feel that the state is neglecting them and neglecting them to the point of death. You know, that's part of you know what the recent British experience has been. Not that the jackboot is at my door, but the state is so busy giving away the assets commonly held to its crony partners that it cannot save, you know, it cannot stop us having the highest COVID death rate in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. It cannot stop six of ten of those people being disabled. And that feels like fascism at one remove to many people. You know, when I asked on Twitter, should we ask this question? Of course, people say, look who's dying. Look how many people are dying. Look who's dying. That looks like eugenicism by neglect. You know, that level of disparity. So, of course, people then feel like, what are you saying? What's interesting then, I think, is often what even people who I might be quite closely aligned to, people I have a lot of commonality with, might say in response, is what we need is a more effectively authoritarian state. So the state's neglect that leads to our death disproportionately amongst the most vulnerable, the answer is a longing for a more effective jackboot. Bring the jackboots to the hospitals, bring the jackboots to the park, because look, we're dying already. That, I think, is a dangerous political moment and, and, and requires us, and that is close to, to what Dave's already talked about, about how do you mobilise the population to be our own authoritarians? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, I interviewed Michael Rosen, uh, the one of uh, the, the world's best-loved children's authors, of course, who nearly died of COVID nineteen. Who spoke of uh, what he called laissez-faire genocide. I mean, it's, it's these discussions need to be had, of course. I mean, one in five hundred people in Britain have died because of COVID nineteen, one of the worst death rates on the face of the earth. I mean, in terms of let's talk about the, the policing bill because that's partly what's triggered this whole conversation. I mean, Dave, how much is that? An aberration. I mean, it's interesting looking back, if we read back some of the discussions about Thatcherism in the late 70s and early 80s, and you did actually have some of these discussions because Thatcherism was very authoritarianism, clearly did an all-out assault against the trade union movement with 
what Tony Blair in uh, 1997 boasted were the most repressive anti-union laws in the Western world. Uh, so this isn't a new discussion, really. Uh, so what, what do you think? I mean, how, how much is, is, say, the policing bill, which could ban, gives police widespread discretion to ban peaceful protests, how much is that, um, you know, does that represent kind of just continuity, building on existing foundations, or is it, is it, is it a kind of a very specific departure? I think, I think um, if you look at the bill, that there's kind of two different ways to look at it. One is to look at the content of the bill and say that these takes things, a lot of them actually were things which were originally developed under Thatcher and takes them a lot further. So the, the main way the bill acts is in terms of this idea that the police get um, the chance to ban certain protests. And that's, that works through um, slightly altering an act which was made under Thatcher, the Public Order Act, which was, came in in 1986, which already gave the police that power, but said you could only ban protests if there was going to be serious public disorder, serious damage to property or serious disruption to the life of the community. So effectively, it was a possible ban for one in a 100 um, demos, if that. What that's changed to, what the bill would change that to is the police could still ban demos, but now if there's going to be a serious disruption to the activities of an organisation, well, the noise would have an impact on people in the vicinity. Now, that's way lowered the threshold. It's made it much, much easier to ban, or it would make it much, much easier to ban protests. So it takes something that was already there, but it takes it a lot further. Um, there is one other point I want to make, which isn't, isn't actually about what the bill does, like, in that sense, but it's more about how we got to the bill. Because for me, that's, that tells you a lot about this moment that we're in. We've had a year where effectively Parliament hasn't sat, where a whole series of laws haven't been made through acts of Parliament, but made through ministers and secondary legislation. We've got all these sort of very strong traditions in Britain that you can't have ministers just invent criminal laws without really intense scrutiny by Parliament. And all that disappeared with the coronavirus um, secondary legislation, the regulations, the statutory instruments and so on. Those all largely passed without Parliament. Now, one of the things which, in a sense, is quite small in the bill, but is also kind of sinister and, and ties on to this notion of really ratcheting up a kind of authoritarian thing that was already there, is the idea that when it comes to um, this decision about whether a march would cause serious disruption to the activities of an organisation. So, for example, you know, if a bunch of green protesters want to um, protest against someone polluting and they stand outside the building of, of, the, of that company, they would be disrupting it. One of the things which says in the draft bill is the person who gets to write the future rules and decides what a serious disruption is, isn't Parliament, but it's the minister, it's the Home Secretary. So built into it is this idea that without needing to go back to Parliament, ministers can just any time they want ratchet it up a bit further, make it a bit more draconian, increase the proportion of uh, marches which are banned from 1% or so at present to 30, 50, 60% of, of marches. Now that kind of authoritarianism, where the people doing it has shifted away from parliament towards ministers, that's something that's really new about the last three or four years. It's what, in your intro, you talked about um, the first um, Supreme Court battle about Gina Miller's case, which led to the judges being denounced. This is exactly what they were worried about. They were worried about a shift of power from Parliament to ministers. And that's something which really is new compared to the 1980s. I mean, Gangi, if we think about the policing bill, I mean, in even in other obvious authoritarian states, 
for most people, you can get, you can live life without excessive intrusion into the state as long as A, you don't show excessive dissent and B, you don't, you're not a minority being actively persecuted by the states. Those are two pretty caveats. But I mean, in our own context, I mean, I know this is something you've, you've thought about a lot, that for lots of white middle-class people who don't dissent from the state, then the idea of Britain being authoritarianism seems ludicrous. But actually, that's not the lived experience of lots of people who live in this country, is it? No, not at all. And, uh, and we spoke a little bit earlier about this, that one of the things that makes it difficult to frame the question as, are we sliding into fascism because of look what's happening, is that the things we're pointing to are things that have been happening to some groups of people probably forever, certainly my whole lifetime, that's, you know, the, the state in its most militarised form, through violent policing, through sexual exploitation as well, that already we, we know that for migrants, for black communities, for some striking trade unionists, although not for others, um, for sex workers, for other kind of minoritised groups, that the state has been, you know, the idea of a, a functioning rule of law didn't really ever apply because mm. that's how the state demarcates who who belongs, who's a real citizen, who's a real human being and who's not. And as you say, that operated by an idea that if you're in this kind of unmarked mainstream, you don't have to worry. We're doing it on your behalf. Some people, they're just never, they'll never be civilised, rely on us, we'll use the authority of the state, our coercive arm, to look after them, go carry on as normal for all of you lot. What I think is shifting a bit, and I wonder if COVID has, is also part of that shift, is a kind of blurring of who is pulled into that coer coercive interaction with the state. Some of that we've seen in the last week around the policing of vigils overwhelmingly led by women, often quite young women, and that being on TV. And so even though a lot of those activists know perfectly well how the coercive arm of the state works, I'm not sure everyone who thought they were supporting them and watched them on telly and social media knew that that was how policing worked. Because as you say, if you're not someone who's out on the street doing that, you might not know. And I think in different ways, COVID, even, you know, even things like the strange protest, anti-lockdown protest, is an indication of a, a, a different uncertainty about, well, what is the state allowed to do to me, allowed to tell me? Are they allowed to tell me to wear a mask? Do I trust them? Who are they doing it for? Why are so many people dying? All those questions come into a way of people starting to think, well, hmm, maybe it is an authoritarian state. I didn't think it before. Maybe it is. And I think that's alongside a huge kind of uncertainty and dissatisfaction with politics as usual. Mm -hmm. and, and people have said in, in the comments that the bit that I think is included in the protest, but perhaps most of society doesn't reckon with so overtly, is the policing bill is overtly discriminatory to Gypsy, Roma and Traveller communities. I was trying to go back through my notes on this one before. People may not remember that in the 2019 election, when the Tory party didn't even really bother to write a manifesto, they thought, get Brexit done, manifesto. The only other bit of policy that I could see that they publicised and wrote was overtly discriminatory policy towards Gypsy Roman traveller communities. So somewhere in their reckoning, they think that active, overt, targeted, racist targeting, that that plays a role, even in 
a politics which seems evacuated of policy. So it's not insignificant it's that in this bill, this other kind of thing, which has been the only strand that they bothered to talk about a year and a bit ago, has come back. Um, mm -hmm. But I also am not sure that it's working. I think it's very hard to see what the temperature of British public opinion is after a year of on and off lockdown. And I think the state is worried about that as well. I mean, Garg, you mentioned there, in terms of the policing bill element targeting Roma gypsies travellers, uh, Lawrence Coldrick is amongst those who've, who've commented and, and raised this. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, David, because obviously we know in terms of minorities, not just in Britain, but across Europe, historically one of the most horrendously targeted, of course, most horrifically uh, by the Nazis, but that was centuries of persecution as a context. And also treatment in particularly many Eastern European states today is horrific, but including in this country. So I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on that and uh, following on what Gargi says and also Lawrence Coldrick, but also the fact, what is the significance of self evidently far right, you know, un unapologetically so figures endorsing Boris Johnson and the cons and his iteration, the Conservatives. And how new is that? Is that genuinely as novel as I've portrayed and suggested? Is it significant or are they just, you know, are they basically just trolls and this is just giving too much credit and it's not that significant? So just those two issues, what, yeah. what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, firstly on the bill, what it does is it creates a new criminal offence, which is residing on land without consent in or with, or with the vehicle. So this is a new law, and as Gargi said and Lawrence asked, this is plainly directly um, um, related to Gypsy, Roma and Traveller people. What, in theory, it seems to me to be designed to, 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 to penalise and criminalise is the following thing which happens quite often. You're um, a traveller community, you um, buy a piece of land, you own there, you live there, you live there for a piece of time, everything's quite right, maybe you've got an encampment. A bunch of people in the local area work out that although you own the land, you don't actually have planning permission to be there. So what the act does is says, right, you are a landowner, you're in your land, you're in your cars, um, but you don't have planning permission to be there. Great. Now, a chief police officer is entitled not merely to evict you from the land, not merely to, um, you know, to, to beat you up and move you on. But also now one of the things which is in there, it's in clause 60C. Uh, the chief officer can permanently impound your cars, can permanently take that property off you. So that's a radicalisation. And, and I think through everything that, that Garg and I are saying, like, I suppose is this basic point. Um, if you kind of, you know, I started by saying that fascism is different in history because fascism takes all this violence and uses it at the core in Western Europe, in America, in the richest bits of the world. Now, of course, from a bigger perspective, before there was fascism, there was colonialism. You know, colonialism did that all around the world. Empires did that, and that was normal. But the whole idea was that people in the metropolis, white middle-class people, were all right. What's distinctive about fascism is it kind of brings that in and affects white workers, groups of white middle-class people. It makes them subject to that same level of, of violence and ill-treatment. Now, if you kind of think about it like that, that that's the, the thing about the authoritarianism at the moment. The, the kind of people who've been getting that state violence at the margins that margin is growing and the core of people who are permanently all right is shrinking. That's the dynamic we're seeing at the moment. The, the other thing you asked about, I'm sorry, slightly just disagree on this. I, I, as it happens, I don't think you can pull that, you can read that much into either Tommy Robinson 
or you know the other little fragments of the right um endorsing boris johnson as a sign that you know they see some affinity with him um i think to be honest they're quite opportunistic um i think basically they'll do what in that extent they'll do whatever they can um to get headlines and in a sense it's not like the 70s where we were talking about a much more ideological right wing which had a much more coherent program behind it and that knew that even if Thatcher was doing some things they liked in the S in the end there's a different political project between um between them and Thatcher I think the difference today is that in some basic ways um a lot of these people these days are much more anti-political non-political the kind of right wing they are is more amorphous and so they'll just kind of you know if, if journalist rings up and says who are you voting for in the election then they're not sort of getting out my camp reading onto page 72 and working out what do we do in a way mm -hmm. that Tyndall or that generation did they're just literally thinking what will get me in the news um they're not you know it's, it's like the dog in the tail um we should be looking at the dog you know the big ways in which the state is moving to the right rather than these people who are to some extent really responding to it in some way away from it I mean, Gary, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on that and what Dave's just said. And and also, I suppose, why not to be too depressing? And actually, it's worth doing a shout out to the likes of Sisters and Cut, who played who played a, a very, very important role. And also, the government are now delaying uh, the policing bill. And that may well be to do, well, Sisters and Cut's uh, approach has, has obviously played a big, big role in, I think, rattling what the government. But in terms of, to be a bit depressing in a sense, why would the government bother with authoritarianism? They've got an 80-seat majority. They've got the vast majority of the British press eating out of their hands. I mean, most of the British press act like the partisan mouthpieces of the Conservative government, unapologetically so, frankly. You know, you get this revolving door. I mentioned Allegra Stratton before, who's married to James Forsyth. She's now the spokesperson for Boris Johnson, formerly of ITV and BBC. Her job was to scrutinise the government, and now she's their spokesperson. Uh, and that revolving door is very extensive. Um, uh, you know, Theresa May hired Robbie Gibb from the BBC. You had uh, David Cameron hired his comms guy from the BBC. George Osborne hired his from the BBC. Uh, and now you've just got the uh, Boris Johnson spokesman has left uh, to continue being his spokesman, but as deputy editor of the Sun newspaper. Uh, so in a more unofficial capacity. What I mean is they've got such hegemony amongst the media and they've the Labour Party is not offering any coherent opposition to this government at all. It just isn't. I mean, there's no point pretending. It just isn't. Uh, and, and, you know, and what you know in terms of these street movements would they pose such a threat to the government that they would need this or maybe they're worrying as lockdown relaxes a lot of the pent-up frustrations and anger uh you know a lot of the injustices that have been heightened by by this crisis will erupt into social struggles on the streets and this is preempting it what's your theory about it basically so responding today but also all that Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Okay, I mean, and I can really hear that if for lots of people who live in Britain, you, you know, you turn on telly, you try and read the papers, you look who's being elected and you kind of think that there's not any wriggle room here, that the rich have captured, the super rich have captured all of those spaces. They all kind of know each other already, as you say, all married to each other, or socially know each other. You know, what are they worried about? But I think we need to say that that kind of capture of key positions by different members of, you know, a kind of very rich group of people is not the same as political hegemony that when we think think about a fascistic moment we're thinking about actually a crisis of hegemony because just because you can get all of the goodies of society to you and yours that's not the same as capturing the hegemonic ground in a society and i think there's a real crisis not only in this country but across the world Although I you know I know the C crisis is another of those left words that we all say to each other, and you know you'll get a oh, big round of applause. Oh, it's a crisis. We're going to win, but so I'll try not to do that. But what we're seeing is a country where all of those elite positions, a kind of a um, tiny group of people who know each other, kind of colonising all of them, and yet they're not able to mobilise the state in a way that will keep enough of us safe enough for things to be business as usual. Always remember, they can't keep alive. What they've done during COVID is siphon off state resources to private hands and shown their inability to keep us alive or even minimally safe. And they haven't either been able to organise that neglect in a way as the authoritarian state has done previously, where you can make sure it's only the ones who don't really have a political voice or you've already demonised, already othered, only those people will be affected. Everyone is being affected and it's not ended yet. I think also alongside pandemic, climate crisis has made the global elite uncertain. Their techniques of managing the economic space are destabilised by climate crisis. We don't know if we can, you know, they have to give us just enough that we keep quiet, then that's hegemony, then I can be rich. That bond is not assured now hasn't been assured for some time and the combination of escalating climate crisis and pandemics which are not going to end in June whatever people might believe that creates this additional danger to a capitalist system which frankly already would kind of run out of run out of road in terms of its useful use for liberal democracy so I think these kind of eruptions of authoritarianism even though they don't feel like it, they're always an indication of uncertainty from the dominant class. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother. You'd carry on being fluffy-haired, oh, love. You'd be on Have I Got News For You some more, wouldn't you? Because that's easier, <laughs> it's cheaper, it works better. If you have to bring out the big guns, that means something is afoot on their side. So I think our conversation is not whether or not we use the F word, but how we understand what is in crisis on their side, because our job is to... We're joining that crisis, isn't it? And as you say, street protests, not least the things that Sisters Uncut led this week, are absolutely core to that. That how we mobilise things which show that this is not business as usual, 
us dying is not business as usual. The pretense that you're keeping us safe when there are no social goods to distribute anymore, that's not business as usual. And I think that's a, a crisis of hegemony and that it's not clear what will happen next. I mean, Dave, what, what's your thought on that in terms of whether this does reveal some, an insecurity that does exist, that this is, there is, this is indicative of, of crisis rather or, or is it a case of what do you think just the way I put it is just this. Um, that does exist, that this is, there is this, this is most of the time, if, if you're, um, a ruling class you want democracy you don't want authoritarianism because democracy is a much more flexible way of dealing with discontent you have elections people believe in elections they trust elections they know if they're unhappy they can just vote every so often and they'll get something even if they won't get everything so democracy is a wonderful pressure valve if you're serious about the interest of the rich you'd much rather have a more democratic than a more authoritarian system in a more authoritarian system, everything gets much more dependent on key personalities. It does enormous damage to the regime if, for example, say like with Dominic Cummings, someone says you've all got to do X and then does the exact opposite themselves. Authoritarian regimes in certain basic ways are actually much more um, prone to fracture. So the flip side of this more authoritarianism, the other side of it, is it actually means that protest becomes more important becomes more of a kind of huge moral challenge to the regime. The regime has to have all of us believing they're good, they're kind people, they're great. The moment people actually know that, for example, Priti Patel was, she wasn't saying, oh yeah, I support the, you know, the people who sisters and cuddle, that's what she put on Twitter, that actually hours beforehand, she'd been negotiating with the police and authorizing them and ordering them to go in. Things like that become much more of a shock when politics becomes a bit more authoritarian. And I think that's why they're trying to clamp down on protest you know, it's because that it's because the way they've made politics go actually in certain ways actually makes them more vulnerable. And that means that what we all do potentially has more of an impact in, in terms of providing more of a challenge to the way politics is going and who's in charge. Finally, in terms of going forward, Gargi, in terms of, I mean, some would argue perhaps myself amongst them, that Labour's failure to offer a coherent opposition to the government is a big part of the problem. They've allowed the government to essentially get away with one of the worst responses to the pandemic on earth with the deaths of one in every 500 people as a consequence. Uh, only, I think, Slovenia and Czechia have worse uh, death rates than and Belgium than, than ourselves, and they're, they're much smaller countries, so it's difficult to make a comparison. But in terms of major countries, this is the worst death rate on earth. And, and a, a catastrophic economic consequence as well. Um, but into, you know, someone here has mentioned uh, they've gone back to the German SDP in the 1930s. That was Larry Paperback. What, in terms of what, what, what's your take on the role of Labour as an opposition in this moment and what that's doing? Uh, but I suppose more, more optimistically or positively, what do you think the strategy is the way forward for the left in this in this moment? Oh, oh, sorry, Gary, you're, you're muted. One second. I don't know why you're muted. Can you unmute your mic? You seem to be muted, and I don't know why. Should we start with Dave? We'll start with Dave, and we'll somehow find a way to unsilence Gargi. Well, I, look, if we're talking about the Labour Party, the biggest thing which Sam has got wrong in the last year, this isn't a left or a right thing. This is just, like, competence and ability to survive as a political party sort of thing. The biggest mistake Starm has made in the last year is effectively agreeing to Tories that you can wind down Parliament. As people are listening to this, I just want them to think, 
prior to the protest bill, which had a vote last week and was relatively contested, when was the last time there was actually a debate in Parliament? When was the last time there was actually a vote against? And you know, for me, I'm trying to struggle and think and answer that question. I don't think there's been one meaningfully for an entire year. The Labour Party hasn't just said, we'll agree with you in terms of your strategies for lockdown or whatever. They've also said to the Tories, we'll agree with you in terms of standing down Parliament, making it invisible, not having any real votes there. And that one of the effects of that means that the Labour Party feels less relevant. If you want to understand why Starmer's poll ratings are tanking, it's because he doesn't, it doesn't feel like he can or will or could do anything which have any meaningful impact on anyone. Now, the person who chose to put Starmer in that situation is Starmer. It's his mistake. It's his functional inability to respond to the moment, which is caused put in there. And you know, the obvious answer to that seems to me is, you know, you cannot carry on doing this and actually have any idea that you're going to rebuild the Labour vote in the way that the Labour right thinks and hopes they will. Gargi, you've been unsilenced. Woohoo. So go for it. No. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think um, it's hard, isn't it, for everyone who puts some energies into the Corbyn project to kind of think, oh, well, perhaps now that is not the place to put our energies. Um, I think some parts of the Labour Party have been brought leftwards by street protest. I think the most exciting thing happening are the ways in which street movements are coming together across constituencies and and kind of points of pressure. So certainly a, a much bigger alliance around policing that brings together very different kinds of people, a different political language around what state violence is, both as a kind of act of violence and as a neglect that is spreading across different constituencies. And I think our job is to build the mass movement. And if we can bring some of the Labour Party with us, that will be good. And that, but um, it's been it's overt, isn't it? The Labour Party in its current um, incarnation has decided to, as much as possible, to limit internal debate and to shut down its links to any kind of street politics. I think that's a mistake. But I also think it would be a mistake for us to spend too much of our energies griping with them about that, because there is a very real threat which we're all living through and we need to relearn our more extensive mobilization techniques not relearn for something you know they're happening but i think for those of us who kind of straddle um electoral and non-electoral politics i'm not sure i'm one of those actually but i know people do but um the non-electoral is probably the space immediately because of this crisis around what the state thinks it's doing its ability to govern about an uncertainty about the role of parliament it matters how we see ourselves and, and show ourselves both in public spaces and in other fora so that an alternative that is not a parliamentary alternative is is revealed to a bigger mass of people, many of whom feel very dissatisfied. Thank you so much, both of you. That's been a really, really enlightening and interesting conversation. Uh, see. For those who are sceptical, given my provocative title, we have managed to have a very nuanced and thoughtful uh, uh, conversation. Uh, and it's a big honour to have the expertise of both of you. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for joining us. And please, everyone watching or listening to the podcast, do follow them and their work and their research. They're both, as you can see and hear, uh, brilliant thinkers who we're, we're very lucky to have. So thank you so much to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you, Anne. Speak soon. Speak soon. Speak soon.
Now, before I introduce my final guest, uh, if you're watching live, please do hit the like button on YouTube and subscribe. And on the podcasts, give us five stars. Just all of this encourages more people to to watch and listen. It helps with the algorithm. Very much appreciate it. Now, Steve Turner is our next guest. He's the Assistant General Secretary of the Unite Union. I've known him for many years. He is a courageous fighting uh, trade unionist. He's standing to be the next General Secretary of the Unite Union, which I'm a member of. Uh, and to be the successor of Len McCluskey, who's led the union now for around a decade or so during a period of tumult and uh, crisis. Uh, Steve's been very involved, for example, in, in, in a leading force in the anti-austerity movement uh, through the People's Assembly, which he chairs, uh, and is involved in multiple struggles and uh, is one of the leading trade unionists in the country. So, Steve, let's welcome Steve in. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? Hi, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for that. I hope I can live up to that. Introduction. Yeah, I know. <laughs> don't don't disappoint people. I have raised their expectations, so do not disappoint. I'm just saying it's a warning. Before I, we will, we're going to come on to Labour and Keir Starmer. Oh yes, we are. But first, we're going to start. Let's talk first in terms of let's talk about Liberty Steel, and this is something which has been, uh, of course, in the news over the last few days. To be fair, interestingly, given some of the questions I'm going to ask about Labour, Ed Miliband did come out and talk about the possibility of nationalisation. Just tell us about what's going on with Liberty Steel and the role of Unite. Well, Liberty Steel is a part of a foundation industry for the steel industry here in the UK, along with British Steel and Tata. Liberty produces speciality steel products, mainly for the automotive and the aerospace sectors, um, offshore oil and gas uh, drilling. Liberty Steel is indebted. Um, it's not transparent in terms of its financial operations. It raises money from various sources around the world. One of its major sources of funding, billions of pounds, is Greens Hill uh, Finance. Greens Hill's in real trouble at the moment. And therefore, the owner, an individual, Gupta, is seeking to refinance the company. Now, I've grave doubts about the success of that uh, initiative. And therefore, I met with Kwasi Kwarteng. Uh, along with the other steel unions as Secretary of State for Business to make a call for the state over the course of the coming period, the immediate coming period, to step in, to intervene and to put the finances in place to save uh, Liberty Steel, not just for the 5,000 jobs directly and indeed the many thousands in the supply chain, but to save a foundation industry that's in real threat right now. Not for the fault of the communities that have supported this business for years or the workers that have worked within it, this is a finance capital issue and a failure of finance capitalism. And the state needs to step in because it is such an important industry for our economy. Now, I'll ask you about the pandemic uh, and so on, but just linking onto that, in terms of the green industrial revolution, which is long overdue, we, climate, the climate emergency is an existential threat facing humanity. So it'd be kind of cool if we sorted that one out. But I suppose it's also an opportunity in terms of skilled jobs, uh, manufacturing, of course, so much manufacturing in this country has been gutted over successive governments over a very long period of time with terrible consequences in many communities. So what what's your thoughts in terms of, you know, your own view and what Unite's position is on how we, what a green industrial revolution would would look like and, and what what kind of jobs could it you know could it create and the impact on communities well, i think there's a real opportunity here this is a time right now not just because of covid but with the climate emergency our post-brexit trading relationships with the rest of the world to reset the clock actually and to put manufacturing back center stage 
in a new economy, uh, an, a greener economy, but also a fairer economy, and an economy that for the first time in a long time talks about full employment, but in decent jobs and supporting coming generations with apprenticeships and skills to enable us to build back better and not from a soundbite or rhetorical point of view uh, that the Tories use, of course, but we have to recover and rebuild from COVID, from Brexit. And in doing that, we have to put a green economy centre stage. So how do we do that? I mean, we've been at the forefront of developing our own industrial strategy in the absence of a government industrial strategy. I mean, ironically, we've got a Secretary of State right now that's just abolished the Industrial Strategy Council and wants to rename his department from business, energy and industrial strategy to God knows what. But they have a distinct lack of any strategy, of course, and more worryingly, a lack of any plan to recover our economy and put a green uh, industrial revolution at the forefront of it. So we've developed our own strategy. And just a couple of weeks ago, I launched our Magnificent Seven projects to create over a million new green jobs. This is about transitioning our existing uh, main core industries, of course, our auto industry to transition from combustion engines to green technology, whether that's batteries or fuel cell hydrogen, our steel manufacturing industry to art furnaces and, heart, uh, and hydrogen again, to manufacturing that hydrogen, to generating green electricity, to getting natural gas out of our uh, economy, out of our homes, of course, and replacing that uh, with hydrogen and more electricity uh, generated projects, making sure that we manufacture here in the UK the goods that we're going to need to transition our economy. So if we're going to build the million new homes that we need, council houses, to address the, the housing crisis and homelessness, and we can do that, and we should never fall into the trap of believing that the fifth richest nation on our planet, we can't afford to invest in our people because absolutely we can. These are political choices to leave people homeless on our streets or in bed and breakfast accommodation or in precarious rented uh, deals with private landlords. We can build the council houses that we need and in doing that, create the direct, good, skilled, uh, secure jobs that we need with the apprenticeships for our kids, unionised jobs, well-paid jobs in our economy to do that. We can also retrofit our homes. One of the biggest uh, challenges that we've got is decarboning our domestic housing and our commercial property. Uh, portfolios and retrofitting that is really important again getting natural gas out but also making sure that we're installing products to green our homes here in the uk like the heat pumps like the battery storage energy storage uh, capabilities even our double glazing and our solar panels making sure that we're doing that here in the uk on energy generation for instance um i mean you may or may not know we've got the largest offshore wind farms in Europe, in the North Sea and indeed in the Irish Sea and all around the coast of Scotland. And yet not a single wind turbine is manufactured here in the UK. It's quite disgraceful that we've allowed that situation to emerge and what could and should have been a real success story in the generation of non-fossil fuel uh, electricity power uh, has become you know, a real obstacle to the creation of legacy good jobs. Uh, in our aerospace sector, we've got the technology now to fly long haul flights using biofuels and not fossil fuels. We can do that. We can do that right now. But of course, we don't invest in the technology to manufacture those biofuels. We want to put broadband. How useful would that been over the course of the last 10 months? We mm. want to put broadband into everybody's homes. That will create thousands of jobs installing that and maintaining uh, that that program but let's make sure that we manufacture the high speed fiber optic cable that we need to do that here in the uk 
when I met with the CEO of Openreach uh, just about a year ago before lockdown, he was planning to fly to North Carolina in the United States to buy hundreds of thousands of miles of cable from, from the US rather than manufacturing here. So let's make sure that we're manufacturing those products here and let's invest in our local services, our public sector. Uh, let's invest in care for the elderly. If COVID's identified anything, it's identified those gross inequalities in society. And of course, dealing with that, with decent public sector jobs, reducing the size of our classrooms, so employing more teachers and teachers' assistants and expanding our education programme, investing in care and health, of course, really, really important areas of work. Local services, many of our councils are at the point of filing for bankruptcy right now and can't provide statutory services, let alone the essential services that we need. These are all green jobs. And there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of green jobs that could be created there, but we have to pay for them. And if we're going to pay for them, that's where high value exports from our manufacturing sector take precedence. So, you know, we've got a plan. Uh, we've launched our plan. I talk to government about it on a daily basis, to be honest with you. And we have some success in moving forward, but they have no real vision or ambition uh, to put manufacturing centre stage or indeed to use the power of the state and procurement from the state the ability to borrow money at 0% interest rates now for the next 70 years or so, to use that money as a positive investment to pump prime a changed economy and create that full employment environment that's so important to us and indeed for coming generations. But not any old job, not precarious jobs, not zero hours jobs or minimum wage jobs. Let's get decent jobs. Let's get pride back into work and give people the respect that they deserve. Amen. And as well as all that, the broadband point, very important. I've been kicked off my own show twice in the last few months live because of broadband. So that would be good to sort out. Before I ask you about Labour, just the pandemic. Now, I know you played a big role in securing the furlough scheme. So tell, tell us about that. But also about how bosses are using or taking advantage, basically, of the pandemic uh, to attack uh, wages, terms and conditions of workers. And, and, and what's the strategy to fight back? Yeah, look, I mean, don't let anybody tell you that a Tories just woke up one morning and thought furlough was going to be a good idea. This was a long discussion with the Treasury team and with Rishi Sunak as the Chancellor uh, personally. And, and I was very proud to be part of that very small team in the TUC. I worked there for Unite, went for Unite, um, to be leading those discussions about the necessity to protect pay as we went into this uh, pandemic. Because we, we could see millions of workers being laid off. Um, as the economy started to lock down. And of course, we already have some of the highest levels of personal and household debt uh, in, in any developed nation. We've already got people in an incredibly precarious position. Poverty levels are extremely high. The UN already speaks about 40 million people in the UK being in poverty. We've got 10 million using food banks. I mean, just this morning, we saw the um, article on nine out of 10 local authorities have seen an increased use of food banks during the course of the pandemic. So we were entering this pandemic uh, in a very dangerous place. And that's not just to do with COVID, to be honest with you. I mean, this is decades and decades of neglect in supporting people in our communities uh, and our wider society. So we went into those discussions and we ended up uh, convincing uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer to introduce what eventually became furlough. And lots of people fell through the cracks and we've tried to plug those holes on a consistent basis all the way through. Uh, and we've had some successes in there. We're opening up an opportunity for shared work on furlough and indeed for the self-employed to be protected as well during this pandemic. And still hundreds of thousands of people have fallen through the cracks. 
But while we're trying to continue to close them, and we still have discussions with the Treasury about that, let's not take our eyes off what is a fantastic victory for our union movement and for working people through this pandemic. And that was the introduction of furlough. And that gene is not going to be put back in the box very easily by this government or any successive government. This is about the state playing its role in supporting its people during very difficult periods in time. And it was really based on a discussion we were having about the German model for short time working, where when they go into a cyclical decline um, in their industrial uh, heartlands, they lay people off on short time working. They halve their working week. The companies pay for the 50 percent that they work and the state picks up the remainder of the wage bill. And industry pays for that through like an insurance policy payment all the way through. Um, so, you know, the state picks it up, but industry plays its part as well. And that's about a progressive taxation system. So we can do that. We should do that. And we'll never lose sight of that. In terms of the wider attacks we've seen, well, you know, Section 118 notices, this fire and rehire that you're starting to see now is not new, but of course it's taken a real prevalence and some real high profile attacks on working people have come during the course of the last year. We've seen British Gas do it. We've seen British Airways do it. We've got disputes at Heathrow Airport right now across our bus sector, whether that's in London or indeed in Manchester, go northwest, where workers are being expected to take huge hits to their wages in order to pay for a crisis which is not of their making. And permanent attacks on terms and conditions and rates of pay as well. Not temporary ones to deal with a crisis. And we all sit down and negotiate deals with businesses that are in trouble. That's what we do day in, day out. 99% of my work is dealing with good companies, actually, good employers that want to treat people properly, that we have good relationships with, who are in really, really difficult situations. So we reach temporary accommodations with them, but don't make permanent cuts. This is just an opportunistic attack. And we'll fight that with every ounce of strength in our body. We've now got a 40 million pound strike fund in our union that's growing, that's growing month on month on month. And we'll deploy that to ensure that workers that are fighting back against these attacks are not starved back uh, into work. Uh, and that's incredibly important for us. So we'll use the industrial muscle and strength that we have to make sure that employers can't get away with it. But we'll also use, and this is probably a lead into uh, a more general political question, use our political influence as well to change the law. The government could end fire and rehire overnight with a swish of a pen. It chooses not to do that. That's a political choice. We can make different political choices to make a real difference for ordinary working people who want to get up in the morning and go to work and come home as safe as they entered that workplace. And they want to feel secure in work long on a long term basis, not just on a day to day basis in a well paid uh, environment, a safe environment. And that's what the union movement provides for millions of workers, actually, whether they're in the union or not, for million of work, millions of workers uh, across the UK and the wider world. Uh, Dalian Haynes has commented, Steve Turner smashing it out right now. Hashtag ST for PM. There you go. Um, before your uh, rise to the premiership, uh, there's another guy at the moment who's with, the, with those aspirations. How's Keir Starmer doing then, Steve? Well, Keir, I, I can't hide my disappointment and I'm not going to from you either, to be honest with you. I mean, look, Keir was elected and, and I'm a Democrat. I'm a socialist, I'm a, but I'm a Democrat. And Keir was elected just about a year ago now, but he was elected on a number of promises, a number of pledges that he'd made. And he seems to be disappointing on a daily basis in terms of fulfilling those promises, to be fair. I mean, I don't think anybody in the nation wanted to see, you know, a political game of ping pong 
being played during the course of the pandemic. This was an opportunity for the nation to come together and for politicians to come together in the defence of our national interests. And, you know, medicine should be nationalised just as water and rail and public transport more generally should be. But it's not. It's in the hands of the private sector, of course. And Keir, I think it was an interesting point that David made in your earlier conversation. Keir made that choice, really, to allow government to disengage from Westminster. And therefore, Labour's become more and more irrelevant as the debate has become more and more limited inside the House. But Keir's made deliberate choices, not just internally, and that's quite obscene. The, the, the level of attacks that we're seeing on ordinary Labour Party members across our country right now in CLPs trying to raise, you know, discussions on you know, sensitive issues. Absolutely. But issues that should be at the heart of a Democratic Party to be able to have a debate about suspending whole CLPs and members for doing that or even raising the sceptre of a debate uh, it is, is just wrong. It's just wrong. It's got to stop. What Keir did with uh, Jeremy, of course, has got to be put right. Jeremy's got to be installed back into the parliamentary Labour Party. The NEC made a decision to end that suspension. And it was quite disgraceful that the agreement that was actually reached behind the scenes to allow that to happen was then disregarded by Keir personally, who then suspended him from the PLP. So all of these internal issues need to be resolved because what people don't want to see is internal naval gazing. They want to see a clear vision for a future and a future that gives them the security that they need for not just themselves, but their kids and their parents and coming generations as well. And that kicks back into what we're trying to do with the Green New Deal um, about our public services, the outrageous 1% offer, which is effectively a pay cut to our nursing staff, our NHS heroes. But of course, more importantly, millions of other key workers are getting nothing, nothing from the government. It's all just completely um ignored so you know i think here needs to step up to the plate we need to generate a very clear distinctive vision for our party moving forward and we need to get out in our communities it is closed down the community organizing project which is a big mistake uh in my view to be honest with you because we need to take our ideas we got a fantastic manifesto in 2017 built on in 2019 that didn't lose us the 2019 election that really was more of a brexit election than anything else. The ideas in there were incredibly popular with the electorate. We just didn't get the time to have that discussion on the doorstep with them about them or in our workplaces. So we need to stop talking to ourselves. We need to stop the infight. People don't like that. They won't vote for a party that's inviting. We need to get out in our communities and build that movement, actually, that was spoken about earlier as well. That broad movement and inspire and motivate people to come home to Labour to come home to Labour. We're a distinctive party. We've got a clear vision for a future that's based on the needs of people as well as, uh, you know, society more generally. But people, people are the centre of uh, our economy. They're the centre of our nation. They're what the, the only body, really, that's important in terms of creating an environment that works for, uh, works for all. And if we're going to do that, Labour's the only party for that. So like, I've been here before. I was here with Neil Kinnock. I was here with Tony Blair. I didn't walk away from that fight. Uh, I've never walked away from a fight in my life. Now's the time to put on your gloves and get in the ring. Uh, but you do that, and you do that not by ranting and shouting or throwing things in from outside. You do that in a positive way, in my view, sitting at the table, having those discussions and winning the argument for it, winning the argument inside the party, but also winning the argument in every workplace that we organise in, back in our communities, down the pub, on the bus, in our homes. This is a debate about what sort of society do we want to be Covid, Brexit, climate, all of these challenges 
give us the opportunity to do that. And we're missing that opportunity right now. Our silence is deafening. Our inability to step up to government failure is deafening. And it's sad. It's sad. This is my party. And I'm saddened by the fact that we're not kicking back on the obscenity of billions of pounds of taxpayers' money being handed over to the private sector. And now we've got a Tory party riding the waves on the polls on the back, ironically, of our wonderful NHS. Our NHS delivering a vaccine programme, the public sector, public funded, public body that they so desperately have tried to you know, privatise uh, over generations now as best as they can. It's the single biggest victory that Labour has ever achieved, uh, our National Health Service. And the Tories are riding eye on that. And all these other things are just, uh, you know, fading away with, without a challenge from Labour. And that's incredibly uh, bad from a policy point of view from Labour. But it's a, a, an awful position to be in, in my view. And we need to put that right. Amen, Steve. I heartily agree with with that analysis. And I hope that the 10 pledges which Keir Starmer did stand on, on domestic policies, including common ownership, uh, higher taxes on the rich, investment, scrapping the trade union laws, common ownership, all of those things, those were promises. They're red lines that can't be crossed and he has yeah. to be held to account, as well as, of course, the reinstatement of Jeremy Corbyn as the NEC ruled. Uh, and uh, perhaps not stitching up selections by imposing one man shortlist, including a guy who... Uh, I covered in the Guardian three, two and a half years ago, following a all expenses paid trip he took to Saudi Arabia, at, hosted by the Saudi dictatorship, whilst they are carpet bombing Yemeni children, uh, beheading dissidents and gay yes. people, and brutalizing women. Uh, the, these are definitely conversations that need to be had, but um, we really appreciate your time. That was uh, huge amounts of comments, very, very supportive. People very, very impressed by your lucid analysis and. Uh, for those who are members of Unite, uh, Steve, of course, is standing to be the General Secretary and a brilliant General Secretary he would be as well. But Steve, really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to having a pint with you on the other side of this. <laughs> so back at you. <laughs> Cheers, Thanks, Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. Take care, buddy. Take care. See you. See you. Um, before we finish, and they were all brilliant, by the way, as per Steve and um, all of our guests today, absolutely fantastic, Gargi and Dave. Just before we finish, am I going to have a rant? Yeah, I think I might have a bit of a rant, actually, just before we go. I know it's Sunday. The weather's kind of okay. But I, just before we let, just before I let you all do your own things after a long and, I think, very fascinating show, please do like the video and subscribe, by the way. Look, Keir Starmer did stand on a set of promises. And I didn't, I didn't vote for the guy, but I, I began, I, I, I very much took his victory, as Steve just spoke about, in good faith, that he was the democratically elected leader of the Labour Party. He won a comprehensive mandate and that, therefore, we should wish him well. And like Steve, I'm someone who's been around the Labour Party. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm younger than Steve, though Steve is eternally youthful. But I joined when I, was, I actually joined the Labour Party when I was 15, which is not what many young lefties are doing at the time. I can tell you that for nothing, when Tony Blair was leader of the Labour Party. But he stood on these 10 pledges, these 10 pledges to commit to transformative policies to challenge the injustices that don't just scar our society, but define our society, which have been highlighted and exacerbated by the national emergency that has ravaged this country now for a year. 
And, you know, I remember that 2019 election. I travel around the country. I went to all sorts of constituencies. And I heard lots of people who were very disillusioned and angry about the Labour Party. I didn't hear a single person go, well, I was going to vote Labour, but actually I, I think the rich are already paying enough tax, so I don't think they should pay any more tax. I didn't hear anyone go... Well, actually, young people, I think they should be saddled with debt for daring to dream for a university education, which benefits all of society. I didn't hear anyone go, well, actually, I think workers already have enough rights, actually. Uh, so I don't think they should be given any more. I didn't hear anyone saying, I, I'm too attached emotionally to my privatised railway system. It's so efficient. Uh, and, and the services of such good quality that I could never possibly countenance public ownership of railways. Never heard those things. It wasn't those policies in that disastrous election, uh, which, of course, led to an 80-seat Tory majority. And those were promises. They were solemn promises. In the leadership election, Keir Starmer released a campaign video saying that they would hold Boris Johnson to account for the promises he made in the election. Correct. That's a correct position to take. But that also applies to him as leader of the Labour Party. And he did make solemn commitments and I know a lot of people, and I don't have to rely on anecdote, I can see the data, lots of people who voted for Jamie Corbyn in both leader, leadership elections voted for Keir Starmer. That's why Keir Starmer won such a handsome mandate. And many of them did that because of those promises. They did it because, A, he promised to keep the domestic policies, B, uh, that he would offer a united Labour Party. I think there were several examples of, of how that has been uh, that particular commitment has been violated. Electability, it's not going that well at the moment, is it? The polling is bad. It's very bad. And the fact that the Labour Party have allowed the government to get away with the one of the worst handlings of the pandemic on the face of the earth, in my opinion, is actually criminal. Because they've been allowed to get away uh, with what Friedrich Engels in the 19th century called social murder. One in 500 people dead one of the worst death tolls on the face of the earth, one of the worst death rates on the face of the earth. Many of you watching, me included, have lost relatives, many unnecessarily, in this terrible pandemic because the government messed up time and time again. They locked down too slow in March. They locked down too slow in September. They locked down too slow in December. They messed up Test and Trace by handing it to private contractors who made a complete pig's ear of the whole thing. Uh, they, they reopened the economy and told people on the front page of the Telegraph that they'd lose their jobs unless they went back to work. Uh, and, and sent people back to university and all the rest of it without a functioning test and trace system. And the consequences is mass death. The worst, you know, about twice as many people have died in this short period of time than the Blitz. This is a catastrophe and they should have been absolutely torn to shreds over it and Labour failed. And that has led to a lot of people thinking, well, they, the government had a tough hand. Who could have done better? Don't see Labour offering a big alternative about what they would have done instead. Now, we have to. Now, I know a lot of people go, well, it's just infighting. What about the Tories? Court, look, people like me spend our lives ranting about the Tories and campaigning against the Tories. But you can't end up with a situation where a Labour leader promises one thing and then does another, and to boot, doesn't even offer the electability which was so promised, where the Tories have an extending uh, poll lead before mass vaccination has been completed, incidentally, and Boris Johnson rides a wave of sunshine and optimism. So, 
all I would say is sort sort it out. You have to sort this out. You owe it to the people who elected you to sort it out. You have a democratic mandate based on certain red lines you cannot cross and must not cross. And it is the responsibility of the left to hold them to account and make sure they fight the Tories because that's the problem at the moment. They're not fighting the Tories in the way that people expect them to do. That's the end of my rant. I'm annoyed. And imposing Saudi apologists, by the way, into seats. Imagine this was Jeremy Corbyn and you had some guy who went on, I don't know, an all expenses tour of North Korea at the behest of the North Korean regime. And they started tweeting about how brilliant North Korea was. I don't think we'd hear the end of that. That would be all over the newspapers. And for a Labour MP, a Labour MP scuttling around Middle Eastern countries funded by the Saudi dictatorship, those trips, the grotesque sight indeed of that, whilst, carpet, whilst children are carpet bombed in Yemen and people are decapitated because they're gay or they're dissidents, whilst women are deprived of the most basic rights, is nauseating. It's physically sickening and it must not happen. And that's the end of my rant. Now, we've got a documentary this week about the COVID-19 profiteers, about companies that have profited from the pandemic. For those who support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84, you're enabling our team on union wages to make that documentary and videos like it. So thank you so much. Please like the video. It's good for the algorithm. Do subscribe. Uh, and we will be next Sunday at 12 o'clock live. We've got many interviews to come. Uh, check out our latest interview with Michael Rosen. He's on great form. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, hello. Do give us five stars. It's been an honor. Enjoy the rest of your days. Uh, and I hope you're keeping safe, looking after each other. Lots of love. See you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.